Hi, Kenan. Thanks for uh, coming on and talking with me today. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. So I I came across your work with your book, Freely Determined. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that you went down the free will and determinism road, given that you're a psychologist. Usually that's not what I see when it comes to this topic as much. So what kind of sparked your interest in investigating the free will determinism conversation and what was what what background um, led you into that? Um, yes. Yeah, so as a, a teenager, I have I've had this long history of debates with my dad, who unfortunately passed away last year, uh, and he was a staunch determinist. And so he really pushed that point of view very hard. And uh, <clears throat> I wasn't sure that I agreed with it, but I was kind of attracted to it because it sounded really scientific. You know, let's just throw away magic ideas like we can do whatever we want and we're independent of the universe. But um, in my work, I haven't really focused on the free will question very much. There's ways to get at it, and some psychologists have, like um, looking at the consequences of a belief in free will versus determinism. That's one way to come at it or to uh, do an experiment in which you convince people that one or the other is true and then see how that affects people. But mainly I've spent my career working on uh, studying people's personal goals, which is what they themselves write down that they're interested in doing mm. in life. And um, we found out all kinds of stuff about that, that setting goals is important. Maybe even more important is having the self-insight to set goals that kind of represent who you really are and will will aid in your growth process and help make you a happier person. So I was studying that for a long time and um, <clears throat> I came across this book by Christian List, who's a philosopher, 2019 book called Why Free Will is Real. And I checked it out and uh, he had a definition of free will and I didn't realize it, but um, it's just a pretty standard definition. It's the compatibilist definition that says the concept of free will is consistent with the material, physical universe, if you think about it the right way. And so the way he thought about it was to say that free will is just three capacities that are related to each other. The capacity to <clears throat> um, think about what you might want to do, get answers, possible answers, then pick one of them and go after it. And I read that and I said, geez, that's what I've been studying my whole career. That's, you know, that's, I asked people to set, pick some goals that they're going to pursue this semester or this month and, um, and then go after them. So there's a sense in which I've been studying the free will process my whole career because it's, it's a, about how people decide what to do next. Um, and so that gave me kind of a great opening to bring my line of research to the question. Um, and there's also the fact that I've been studying self-determination theory for decades, which basically says we have a need to feel that we have free will, or we have a need for autonomy to be doing what we uh, choose or want to be doing rather than doing what we feel forced or controlled uh, to do. So that gave me an, an angle on the free will question as well. And it all sort of came together as I wrote the book in a way that um, I was pretty happy with. Yeah, I, one of the interesting parts that, well, I, I guess one of the interesting insights that I had early into the book was I originally thought 
that it was going to be a book about, you know, the, the objective reality of ultimately, you know, who's really driving the driving the car. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those topics that's interesting, but it's like, there's not really a way to settle it. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's one of those things where you can kind of, you know, debate in circles forever without really coming to much of a conclusion. But what I, I, I liked the turn in your book that you, you stripped it down to a more practical level with that definition of our ability to weigh alternatives and pick one. So it, it sounded like you're making more of a pragmatic argument of like, yes, like metaphysically, we don't know, but it's best if we live in a way, it's it's best if we live as if we have free will. Is that yeah. like more of the premise? Yeah, I mean, I think that free will is true within a lot of limitations if you define it the right way. Yeah. But I recognize that you can't really convince a determinist, you know, <laughs> and they can't convince me either. Um, so you're right that that debate will never really be resolved. Um, so yeah, then it becomes what are the consequences of, of believing mm -hmm. in free will or, or not. And um, there are some pretty important consequences where if you think that you have no um, causal effect on your life as a subjective person, as a mental entity of some kind, you are in kind of bad shape from a mental health perspective. You know, we need to believe in our ability to control things, to make things happen, to get what we want to a certain extent. And if we don't have that uh, ability, we're, we kind of become helpless. So for, for at least yeah. that reason, uh, it seems beneficial to believe in free will, even if it's not true in some, you know, deeper way. Although I, I yeah. continue to believe that it isn't true, but you know, it might be. But in that case, then it's important to have the illusion of free will. And, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll stand behind that. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of one of those situations where, like, even with, you know, like you take somebody like Descartes, it's like, okay, you know, maybe there is some evil demon that's giving me the illusion that I have hands, but like, I don't really know what to do with that. With, with the, with the determinist argument, I don't, you're, you're kind of left with like, okay, so I'm not in control of stuff now what, but with, with adopting free will, it's, it seems much more beneficial. Is, is there, do you think that there's some kind of middle ground there? Because, you know, with the definition of us weighing alternatives and then picking one, you know, of course there's not, you know, there's processes going on that, influences the way that we're seeing the world and what alternatives we pick is it kind of just like ultimately it's somewhere in between but it's better for us to focus on the things that we can control and believe that we do have the ability to pick these choices yeah well i'm not quite sure i would agree that it's in between because i'm not sure okay. what, what the in between is sure um <clears throat> i just think that um Okay, I just had an article accepted to come out an American psychologist pretty soon on free will. And that was a quite a coup because, you know, that's a very um, uh, impactful journal. And um, <clears throat> I was able to make an argument that I basically said, I can't resolve this debate, you know, once and for all, certainly not in this short article, but I will provide a definition of free will, this ability to consider alternatives and push it um, and it, you can push it pretty far and I also in that article argue that this is an evolved capacity of the human mind that mm -hmm. 
we can't just rely on instincts or automatic mechanisms. We are in this really complicated, shifting social, personal world where we feel like we have some history and continuity and we have long-term goals, most of us. And um, <clears throat> evolution gave us the capacity, I think, made the argument that uh, to uh, to do this thing of weighing the alternatives right now in the context you're in as the person you think you are and making a choice going forward. So at least in that sense, I think that we have really kind of radical free will that might even be inescapable, that mm -hmm. our brains are making choices. Somehow we're deciding what to do next. And um, we can't really deny that. <laughs> some people they some people want to deny it because they don't like the idea that they're responsible, that they might yeah. make mistakes. Um, so this is really an existentialist perspective that I am also weaving into the book is that uh, we can't help but make choices because our brain is a choice making engine. That's what it evolved to do. Um, <clears throat> I think if you look at it that way, it's kind of helpful. You know, maybe in yeah. some abstract, ultimate way, it's just an illusion. But um, I, I really do think we're kind of making it up as we go along, and that we evolve to be able to do that. Yeah, and and that that ties in with the symbolic self, like that, that evolutionary perspective, that that development of being able to like form a mental representation of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, the symbolic self is a it's sort of complicated idea, but it's basically that we live in this sense of being a person with a history and characteristics and goals and thoughts coming and going. And that doesn't mean that there's actually a little person mental homunculus inside yeah. of our head that's controlling things. It just means that we have the capacity to simulate that in our minds and act as if we were a homunculus or we were a tangible entity making decisions. And that makes it true to a considerable extent. And that that symbolic self, some of the benefits that you write about, it's, it, it gives us some kind of, you, you mentioned that the social benefits, that it, it gives us a self that can better interact with others. How, how's that? Yeah, this idea first came from uh, social psychologists uh, Setakides and Skowronski back in 1997. They made a pretty compelling, very bold argument that the symbolic self evolved and that it has three basic functions that it evolved to do. One is to serve as an action um, executive uh, to you know, kind of control, select and control behavior. A second function is to... Um, kind of project ourselves as selves into the minds of others and hopefully, you know, impress them or show that we're trustworthy and likable. Mm -hmm. um, and people who can do that well get a lot of benefits from it. And then the third self uh, a function that they uh, talked about was defending the current structure of the symbolic self. We, it's kind of, we have an identity we don't want to just let go of it on a whim you know we want to kind of work out of it and from mm -hmm. it and so i i think you can make a really good argument that that's three big things that we are all doing as selves in the world um 
And the interesting thing about that third function, the defensive function, is that it can prevent us from updating our self-model so that it better represents who we are in a deeper sense. You know, because we're kind of living up in a mental verbal world mm -hmm. where it's a, it's really a sort of a representation, a simulation of something underneath. Yeah. You know, and that something underneath is tricky to talk about. It's not a Freudian unconscious. It's just um, kind of the sum total of the way I think about it, who we are in, in, in what we sort of are good at, what mm -hmm. we uh, are disposed to want and like, and uh, the, the enduring values and interests that we have. And so um, the problem that we face is that that symbolic self is very often kind of behind the times. We're yeah. pr protecting who we thought we were rather than embracing who we're becoming. Um, yeah, because there is no such thing as the symbolic self. There's just who it thinks it is right now, uh, <laughs> yeah. and that can change. Yeah. yeah so you, you mentioned um, in the book "Wisdom of Insecurity" by Alan Watts. He he was big on um, not getting too attached to a fixed self. Yeah, like Carl Jung talking about that. How how there were various neuroses that he thought emerged, like as people go into phases of their life where they're kind of clinging to an identity that they used to have and not wanting to like go with the times like aging, for example. Yeah. Um, what is it? What is that balance life of like, or that balance like of maintaining a, a, a stable self while also being able to update it and not getting too rigidly attached to it? That's a, a really hard question. And it's, you're right. Sure. It's, it's a tricky balance because if you just abandon your identity at the slightest sense of, oh, I don't, I'm not sure now, or I feel like I'm being inconsistent, you're going to be kind of helpless to you need an identity. But you don't want to cling too hard to it because you want it to be able to grow. And uh, <clears throat> how, how can we tell? I would say one way we can tell that we're clinging to, to an outmoded identity is that we keep getting signals from somewhere deeper in ourselves, a recurring idea, an image of me doing something else or me being somebody else that we might keep sort of shoving down, but we could come to recognize it as a um, signal uh, that our deeper self is trying to um, send to our uh, more uh, superficial or current symbolic self Mm -hmm. It's always shifting and changing. And so from that point of view, we need to learn to listen to these um, difficult-to-hear signals. Yeah. What are ways to better get in, in touch with that? Because it's, it's kind of easy for, the, like, if you get too caught up in your head to ignore a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the best ways is mindfulness meditation. And what I like about that kind of meditation is the only thing you're trying to do is shut up and listen to yourself yeah <laughs> you know just watch and yeah and as you're trying to maintain this sort of clear space stuff comes up stuff comes bubbling up and our tendency is to get sucked into that and attached to it and, and before you know it a minute has gone by and you haven't been mindful you've just been in this tunnel uh philosopher thomas metzner talks about the ego tunnel uh, but if you get good at it then you start to recognize recurring images or feelings or 
impulses that um, maybe you didn't really know were there, but now mm-hmm. you can see them because you've, you've cut down the noise to allow them to emerge. I, I think there have been studies on meditation that it, it's shown the ability to reduce activity in the default mode network, which they're connecting to the symbolic self. So in a way, you're kind of reducing that um, that, that identification with yourself and more, like more directly experiencing what you are in a way. Like, is that roughly what's happening? Well, roughly. I mean, I would say with mindfulness meditation, you're making an executive decision, sort of prefrontal cortex of, I'm just going to watch and not going to let anything else happen, which is really hard to do and you fail and you fail and you fail. So you are trying to keep that default mode network from sort of taking you off on a daydream, which it it will do. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need the default mode network because it's where a lot of the deep information gets put together. It's where creativity happens. Um, and so this is one way that I've come to think about it. Uh, I have something called the goal breakthrough model, which is really, um, it's where do we get new ideas for things to do? And this goal breakthrough model says it takes a creative process perspective. And it says, well, uh, it often happens when we feel a sense of dissatisfaction. We don't know why. But then we start to ask ourselves questions like, what's wrong? What do I want? We don't get answers at first, but then uh, sometimes we'll have this flash, flash of illumination, uh, the creative insight like Archimedes and the, the, the bathtub. And there's many examples of this. We'll say, I should do X. And we may not endorse that yet, but it might keep coming up. And eventually we'll get to the point where our prefrontal cortex says yes. That's it. I'm going to do that now. I'm writing this down in my journal. That's my new goal. And then you start to to work towards that goal. So the you're in in mentioning the the default mode networks influence on creativity. It's kind of just like like you're planting a seed and then letting background processing happen, and then you, you can kind of get an idea pop up. Like, like that's, those light bulb that's it exactly. That's it okay. exactly. And it's also the interplay between implicit thought or non-conscious thought versus explicit or verbal um, self-regulated thought. And so you, you, you ask yourself the question, and that plants the seed, and it, it, it's a prime for your non-conscious or implicit mind to start sort of working it over. And once it yeah. kind of has that direction from, from you, the mental executive, then it can do some pretty amazing things and it'll notice connections or put things together yeah. in a new way. And then it's up to you when it sort of pops up to, to recognize it. And then it's also up to you to embrace it and say, that's what I'm going to do, mm-hmm. uh, which I think takes quite a bit of courage. Yeah. To, to trust that, that just idea that kind of popped up, like even if you don't have an explanation for it to just kind of like be willing to, follow that idea is, is that why it takes courage yeah i mean it's yeah. it's basically just go with your gut and that's yeah. you know it's an old idea but i think there's quite a bit to it but you shouldn't just go with your gut because your gut also has stuff in there that might be you know automatic impulses that you that, that are working against you that are left over or their defenses so i i think it's a question of 
um, asking yourself the right questions so that your gut will give you the right answers. Yeah, and that's that's you can come up with creative ideas that way, and you can also set goals that way. Which I mean, that's that's a creative process, just like generating ideas. But you talked about the difference between extrinsic motivations and um, intrinsic motivations and in, in goal setting and how different they often are. I I didn't realize how different, like if, if you ask somebody to write down goals, how different those usually, like they'll, they'll usually set goals that they don't even really want that bad. I wouldn't say usually, I would say some people. Okay. And the way we tell is we ask them, well, why do you want that goal? And if they um, endorse extrinsic reasons, I have to, I should, other people want me to, I need the money. That's a symptom that it might not be, you know, in a deep way, the best thing for you. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you say, oh, I want this goal because it's enjoyable, it's fascinating, I, it's meaningful, I believe in it, that's a symptom that you've chosen well. So even though we can't see all directly into ourselves, we at least know how we feel about what we think we want. Okay. Right? The, the thing we think we want is the goal we're already pursuing. Mm. And if I ask you to tell me why, uh, based on your answers, I can kind of tell you whether that's the right one for you or not. And it's really, again, it's sort of simple. Is it something you really like and enjoy and think is meaningful? If so, there's a pretty good chance that you know, it fits with who you are in this deeper organismic way mm -hmm. uh, and that you've done a good job of making that choice. Yeah, and so that, that ties in with, um, in, you listed off a few of the benefits of the symbolic self. The other one that, that you had mentioned in the book was to make it, make sure that it's an accurate representation of the deeper self. So then you're more aligned with those two. And yeah. like, so so in, in developing that sense of self, how much of that should be deliberate and how much of that should be you just kind of intuitively like picking things up as you come along? Like, like what's that balance between kind of thinking your way to your, I guess, sense of self versus, yeah. I, I, guess, I guess, just kind of letting it come natural? Well, I don't think we really think our way to our sense of self. I think there's always okay. these conscious and non-conscious things going on. Um, <clears throat> And we need sort of both of them. So sometimes we need to step in and ask ourselves the question. We're not, we're dissatisfied. We, we, that's all we know. But if we ask ourselves the question, then that can give us answers. But then we need to shut up and listen uh, <laughs> so we can hear those answers. And those come from a, a different place within our minds. I, I thought this section on... Well, I mean, a, a lot of the book is about happiness, but you mentioned that happier people are more likely to have better outcomes in life across broad domains. And, and you made the the point to say that that you think that that's that, that that's causal and not like the result of achieving the good outcomes, which seems counterintuitive. And in, in, in many fields is often thought like I'm going to grind away at this thing and then I'll be happy about it. Instead, you say that it's kind of, or and then I'll be happy. Instead, you say it's kind of the reverse. Yeah. Well, actually, it goes both ways, I think. Sure. Um, as a goal researcher, I've been mostly going with the first thing, where you grind away, and especially if it's the right goal for you, then achieving it will make you happier. 
But Barb Fredrickson, um, prominent positive psychology researcher, has a, she calls it the broaden and build model, which says that happiness or positive affect starts first, and then that helps you achieve your goals. And both of those things are true. The benefits of being a cheerful person are that um, other people like you better. Um, you're able to think more creatively when you're in a good mood. You're able to make connections. So it's not that um, ha happiness causes you to do better, but it, it's a background variable that uh, makes it easier to do better. And so with the back and forth between these two things, there might even be what I call an upward spiral possible, where um, we did one study, uh, we, we called it the upward spiral study, where first semester freshmen coming into Missouri, if they selected uh, self-concordant goals, which means ones that they you know, enjoyed and thought were meaningful, they did better in those goals, and then they were happier at the end of the semester, and then they selected even more self-concordant goals in the second semester. You know, they, they rode that momentum to uh, select new goals that maybe were even better uh, representative of, of who they were or this trajectory that they could get on and ride. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think an optimal life is about. It's um, just building on your strengths and, and getting stronger. Yeah, you put a, you put a big emphasis in the book on setting goals. So, and you you mentioned in your in, in your research um, setting goals and then achieving them that making you happier, um, e even even if you're not happier in the beginning. That that seems like it's kind of in ways an infinite game that it's easy to kind of just get lost in. How, how do you like? Because there's there's no finish line with accomplishing goals. Like, uh, how do you not just get too caught up in that, and then like just lose years of well, your life? I mean, you shouldn't get too caught up in goals. But to me, it's one of the most meaningful aspects of life. I mean, so I'm nearing the end of my career. I've been way more successful than I expected to. I've published three hundred articles. Each one of those was a goal. It started off with. Huh, I'm interested in this question. How can I study it? And it's just, it's like a two-year period when I'm thinking about that question, collecting the data, writing it up, and then I accomplish the goal, I publish the paper, you know, and then I'm on to the next thing. And so I think that's, at least for an achievement-oriented person, more than just for, for very high achievers, I think that's what life is about, is the next thing. And... Uh, <clears throat> Setting a goal is the same thing as exercising your free will. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of all we can do in life is make choices and you know try to make them come true to bring the future to be that we wanted to have. And so I don't see it as being at risk of getting too caught up in that. I mean, I guess a person could never stop and smell the roses, you know, or they could think that if they fail at a goal, they're worthless. I mean, there's things like that can happen. But uh, the basic idea that uh, staying active and challenging yourself, I think that's one of the best ways to live. Do you notice a difference in, in personality with how somebody should approach setting goals? Like somebody who may want to be more structured and clear with their goals 
compared to somebody who likes to be more spontaneous and like less goal oriented because there, there's definitely you have people who kind of lean towards both do, do you notice much of a difference with personality yeah i would say you know the one type is sort of more impulsive and spontaneous the other type is more conscientious and you know maybe anxious i think they can both work um and, and again there might be a balance where you don't plan mm -hmm. everything you just yeah. ride it as you go and new things pop up and new opportunities and you know, maybe you change your plans so you know i think there's a risk to over planning but there's also a risk to under planning sure um i i thought it was interesting what you said about creativity um it and and happiness it seems like you know that there's the kind of the trope of like the starving artist that people get wrapped up in it, in your experience and your research does that not seem to be the case does it seem to be better that people are more creative and flourish better creatively when they're happier yeah well this is an old question in the creativity literature um, <clears throat> the starving artist idea I think is mainly about people who are struggling with mental health problems and they're also very talented people and they're coping with their problems via creativity and that can be you know a very powerful thing um, it might be better to be miserable and creative than uh, content and non-creative from from their point of view but uh, there's also plenty of research that shows that people are more creative when they're in a positive mood mm -hmm. and actually there's been some cool studies of these um, mentally impaired mental health impaired people creators that shows that it's when they're in their good phase that they get the best ideas, right? So they kind of need to be miserable, but then they maybe get a little manic. Uh, yeah. And that's when the ideas come. So maybe it's some of both working together, potentially. Is it is it kind of like a when you're happier, you're not, your mind's not as consumed with all these problems that you might get wrapped up in and you're more free to think? That's part of it. That's part of it. Um, when we're unhappy, um, our semantic network is narrower. You know, mm -hmm. it's like so test anxiety. It's like you, you studied everything, you know everything, but now you go in to take the exam. You can't remember because you're anxious and you just can't see clearly. You can't think clearly. So it, it helps to... Um, to be in a positive mood because then you are yeah. just seeing to what you you know uh going back to self-determination theory one of the needs is to be autonomous uh, what what is i mean i mean and you know back to the free will conversation what kind of influence does that have on our just on, on i guess like the way that we pick our goals and our overall sense of well-being. Yeah. Well, feeling like you are the cause of your behavior, like you agree with what you're doing, that's uh, that's autonomy is defined by self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. Hugely important for mental health, as opposed to feeling controlled. You have to do what you're doing. Other people are making you. Um, and so uh, when I got involved in SDT, self-determination theory, 
I brought in something new, which was this goal setting angle. And <clears throat> what I found was is that people set goals that they didn't feel autonomous in pursuing. Yeah. Not all people. We talked about this a minute ago. Mm-hmm. And so that for me became the symptom of poor goal choice. That's you telling you that what you think you want you want to do isn't what you really want to do. And the symptom is you don't you feel like you're being forced. You don't really think it's meaningful and interesting. So what I did was took the concept of autonomy from SDT and so let's use that feeling to uh, index whether or not the person has chosen wisely in making goal selections. It seems like the difference between feeling that you're in control versus not is something similar to like growth mindset versus fixed mindset. It, how can people kind of switch out of a out of a paradigm of saying that that they don't get to decide what kind of goals that they set? Well, I think they need to recognize that they do. And actually, they can't help deciding what goals to set. And if they're letting themselves uh, succumb to social pressure to set goals that they don't want, that's a problem for mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And they should um, sort of wake up and say, it is B, and uh, take responsibility for that. Right now in my life, I'm pursuing goals that I don't want. And I think that I have to because of X, Y, and Z, but maybe I don't really have to, and maybe things will work out better for me if I do something else. But, and that's where the courage comes in because, you know, there's a lot of sunk costs in a, in a goal that we've been pursuing or yeah. parents want us to do it or we need to do it to make a living, we think. And that, that can all be true. And so you can just go ahead doing what you've been doing uh, and not being as happy as you could be, or you could take the risk, uh, have the courage to say, this is my one and only life, and I'm going to start doing something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I recommend. But um, there's no guarantee that it'll, that it'll work out better. It'll tend to yeah. on average, but it might not. How, how much does that influence um, our, our need for competence? Like whether or not we feel autonomous in setting our goals yeah. and our pursuits. Well, we're going to be more competent if we're pursuing uh, an autonomous goal just because okay. we really want to do it. So those two needs correlate with each other. All three needs, um, autonomy, competence, and relatedness correlate with each other. But they are distinct. So you said uh, a minute ago you were talking about control. Well, control is a tricky thing because it's got autonomy and competence in it. Mm-hmm. But um, it, you can imagine splitting them apart. So an analogy we often use is a slave who can control what happens within their life because they're competent, you know, and they can keep getting what they need to get by and maybe even feel pretty good about being a great slave. But that doesn't mean that they're they're doing what they really want to be doing. So they could be very competent and have low autonomy. That person's not going to be as happy as somebody who feels both uh, autonomous and competent. You mentioned, um, and then, you know, this being the third need, relatedness and connectedness. um, How much does whether or not we're uh, we view the world as us being autonomous. How much does that influence the way that we interact with others? It, it, in the book, I think you mentioned that 
it usually will let a it usually leads to people kind of allowing others to do their own thing as well rather than being controlling yeah usually it does because you've come to a position of appreciating that you can do what you want you know within limits reasonable limits and you know that's better when you are able to do that and so you want other people people to be able to do it too so you can have richer more meaningful relationships with them if on the other hand you feel like you know best for somebody else and you're going to tell them what they ought to be doing and try to push them into it it's probably not coming from a good place in you to want to do that it's yeah. probably not really autonomy the way SDT would define it. it. It's you compensating for some problem of yours where you think things are going to be better for you if you can get other people to do what you want them to do. But it's yeah. probably not. You, you mentioned at the end um, that the fourth order thinking of the self, which would be better including um, other characters into the story, which would you know, increase empathy and the way that we interact with each other. How can people better do that? Like, what are some ways to improve that perspective and broaden it? You know, that's a tricky one, getting people to kind of get out of their ego and recognize the reality of other people in a deep way. Mm -hmm. You know, for some people, it might take something pretty extreme to jolt them out of that, maybe some... Um, pretty distressing or traumatic experiences or maybe some kinds of um, uh, guided drug experiences can snap people out of the self they have been and expand that into something that's a bit more inclusive but really we're talking about a lifelong developmental task you know to <clears throat> expand ourselves and our appreciation and relationship with others so mentioning um like experiences that will kind of expand ourselves, our senses of self, or just kind of get rid of them almost completely. It seems like, at least temporarily, um, it, se it seems like many of the spiritual and religious traditions are not in favor of the ego and the self, yet we have these these known benefits of having one. It, it seems like, th like th they think that it's more of a, more of a poison in many ways. So it, it's... Yeah. It's it's not about necessarily like getting rid of it completely. You're saying it's more of a, a it's more a matter of expanding it to better interact with others. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I agree that many spiritual traditions are about getting rid of the ego, and I agree that that's a good thing to do if you define the ego as a limited and perhaps no longer developmentally appropriate self concept that is getting in your way but mm -hmm. i don't think you can get rid of the self altogether because sure. it, it's who we are from a psychological right. perspective and if you took that away then you've got you know identity disorders and you you're pretty much unable to do anything so it's finding the middle way that's the trick you know how, how much of um I, I guess like being able to project our sense of self into other people, how much does that help with empathy? Because usually it's thought that, or many people will talk as though it's like the self gets in the way of of better connecting with other people, but it seems like there's a way where you can like kind of project it into others. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not an empathy researcher, but I'm not sure if it's projecting yourself into others so much as letting them project themselves into you. <laughs> um, okay, I, I see what you mean. It's sort of subtle. I'm not sure I've ever said that before, but it, it might be worth <laughs> thinking about. Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess what I was getting at was like that ability to construct to construct, um, you know, a, a story around the self like it, it seems like th that could be helpful for better empathizing with other people I've, i wasn't sure if there was research on that or not yeah i think so so what what are you up to now what um what projects do you have in the works where can people find you online um let's see i'm working with a startup company called do curious and we're going to launch in early early next year january or february oh. And this company is designed to solve the teen mental health crisis by getting them off their screens and out into the real world. Okay. Um, so what Do Curious is going to do is pr provide an online marketplace for goal-oriented challenges. So anybody that can teach anything, dance lessons, kayaking, rock climbing, you name it, your local providers will post challenges on the site. And then you, or maybe with some input from your parents, or really anybody could do this, um, you, it's this big menu. You could say, I want to go out and learn a yoga pose or um, do this little stretch of whitewater rafting. Cool. And so the, the, the thing about this is we think it'll help people find what they like to do to use okay. their free will wisely. We don't really have a, a way to browse experiences. And so we're trying to provide that. And so as part of working with this company, I posted a couple of blogs uh, on Psychology Today last week, talking about the teen mental health crisis and how mm -hmm. uh, companies like Do Curious will uh, hopefully help uh, to, to deliver challenge and meaning in in offline life to kids yeah. who are too stuck online sure so so it's a way of like you know you have kids just always being online it's a way of providing a hub for you know because m most most things online are trying to keep you clicking and keep you watching right, right, this, right, is, right. this is a balance to that where it's like a hub for experiences where you can find things where you can go outside and do something yeah, it's, it's ironic cool. that it's an that it's a website <laughs> that's trying to get you off of it and out into the world yeah but you know it's doing the, the usual stuff that's needed to help monetize it like so there will be you can have uh, badges if you complete a challenge and you can share them to social media and there's all that stuff yeah um, and i've always been a little suspicious of that but um I know that it's part of, of how these things work. And so I keep saying, let's make sure the focus is on getting out there and doing stuff and not about impressing your friends with the stuff that you did. Right. Yeah. How, how have you applied your perspective as a researcher to that, to that app, like with goal setting and all of that? Yeah. Well, my research is ex about exactly what they're trying to do, which is, get people to set goals, hopefully uh, challenging, stimulating growth, promoting goals in the world so that they will uh, thrive and be happy and de develop to the, the, the maximal extent. So it's, it's almost like I've been preparing to, to help this company for my whole work life. 
Yeah. So, so it's, it's not only a place to find ideas. It's also a way to like track your progress and, and like put various projects together on the site where no, it's not really a goal setting site. So, you know, I mean, there are sites like that where they help you set goals and help you make plans and blah, blah. This is a, um, um, a new experience finding site okay. where the experiences are couched as challenges. So the experience providers will say, come do the X challenge, which involves learning to do this up to a certain level of proficiency or solving I this or, or finishing that. And so it's, um, it's designed to get people into flow. You know, when you're in a flow state, you are trying your best to, to meet some challenge to climb that rock wall um, and it's right at the edge of your ability and that's mm-hmm. when you get into flow and you're, you lose your sense of time you lose self-awareness you're just doing what you're doing and that that's a, a very important experience uh, for people mm-hmm. both for their happiness and for their cognitive development so that's what we're really trying to do is get people to have new experiences that are framed around some kind of challenge but with with flow, um, is, in in your research, is is, that, is there a certain way that like people can strategically approach their goals that make them more conducive to that kind of experience? Like maybe modulating the difficulty of the goal or something like that. Yeah, if the goal's too hard, then um, according to Csikszentmihalyi, the author of Flow, you will be in a state of anxiety. If the goal is too easy, you'll be in a state of boredom. So you want to find the perfect middle way so that you're in that flow. Uh, he has a book called Beyond Boredom and Anxiety. So, um, yeah, one way is to to um, step back and make the goal simpler or break it down into smaller, easier steps that you're better prepared to meet right now. Um <clears throat> So this is often beneficial is to break goals down into simpler goals because they feel kind of overwhelming. It's like, yeah. I want this and it's months away. How do I get there? I have no idea. Well, why don't you just say, here's a good start. I'll do this today. I haven't tried that before. I'll just give it a shot. And the thing about that is that uh, it can take on a momentum of its own. and It could suggest, oh, well, then tomorrow I should do this. That'll be the next step forward. So I have I published some research that we're better off if we um, <clears throat> keep our nose to the grindstone instead of our eye on the prize. Yeah. That if, if we're looking at the prize too much, then we're thinking it's months away, I'll never get there. But if we keep our nose to the next task, then we're able to make slow progress, maybe fast progress, and we can feel ourselves moving. We can be encouraged. You know, and then as time goes by, we'll get to the, the big thing that we wanted. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, that the be, be curious sounds interesting. Um, so that's going to be early twenty twenty four. Yeah, yeah, we're um, doing some uh, funding campaigns, trying to write, uh, raise funds. But the the software is pretty much ready. Uh, it's programmed cool. and ready to go. We just have to get hooked up with challenge providers, and then make challenge seekers aware of it and so forth. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I look forward to checking it out when it's out. And um, th- thanks a lot for coming on and talking to me today. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you asked uh, really good questions. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks.